Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Na mihinui. Welcome to our Changing World Summer Science Series. Ko klerken kanana hao. I hope you have had a chance to get out and about this summer, whether tramping, going to the beach, or just sitting in your garden, say, listening to your favorite radio station. Keep an ear out also for the birds that are around you. While it is just beautiful background noise to most of us, one group of researchers are paying close attention to how birds sing and what they might be saying. This story about that research called Breaking Down Birdsong is from July of last year. Enjoy. Birdsong can be so beautiful, but what does it mean? Is this a melodic tune or an elaborate poem that's to enthrall and attract another bird? Or is it an angry shout, like a warning to stay out of my territory? Could this be a traditional riff that has been passed down through generations of birds? Or is it a cool new phrase that these birds are just trying out? Is this language, or is it song? No mai hairimai kito tato au hurihuri ko klerken kananaho. Welcome to this week's Our Changing World, all about how and why songbirds learn to sing, and about how some researchers in the Southern Hemisphere are trying to correct a long-standing male bias in the songbird world. Diane Brunton from Massey University in Tamaki Makoto has been interested for many years in how songbirds learn their song. Now, songbirds is this huge group of birds. They're also called the passerines. And Diane is really interested in the evolution of birdsong in these passerines, how and why their songs change. So in birds that learn their songs, so all the passerines, you know, there's flexibility in what they sing and who they learn from. That is equivalent to human language in many ways. So, you know, humans learn their language from their parents, from, you know, when they're young, they hear around them and they learn that language. So a young bird might grow up in a particular environment and it's going to learn and incorporate the sounds that it hears in that environment and it's going to incorporate those into its own song when it becomes an adult. Why are we interested in this evolution of birdsong and the learning that birds get from each other? It has a lot of ramifications into different types of science. For instance, the mechanisms behind actually learning and producing that song has all sorts of implications for the brain structures. And knowing the natural systems and and how birds communicate with each other can tell us a little bit about natural systems that get disrupted. So, for instance, if you've got a, like a New Zealand forest, we have lost a lot of species, we've lost a lot of density of birds in forests. So that 
disruption has meant that some of the mechanisms like birdsong and communicating with each other have been disrupted too. So there are implications. It's not just a nice-to-hear birdsong, but there are implications about how this affects the actual dynamics and evolution of some of these species and, and their survival and ecology. The interesting thing from our point of view is that New Zealand has some really nice examples of this birdsong learning. And because birds here sing year-round, that's also a kind of an, a really neat aspect of it. And so things like saddleback and bellbird and tui, they'll sing year-round. And in tuis and bellbirds, uh, males and females sing, which is, is kind of interesting as well. Because in other countries or other birds... It's not both males and females? Yeah, in the Northern Hemisphere, primarily where a lot of the you know, birdsong work has been done over the years, it started with naturalists going out and listening to birds and describing them. In those situations, partly I think because migration is part of the, the natural history of these species, females don't sing. They tend not to sing. So it, it's known that... The origin of the passerines is Australia. And so the southern hemisphere has a lot to tell us about the evolution of birdsong. And in the southern hemisphere, you get female birds and male birds singing. Pretty interesting, right? So the northern hemisphere, where females tend not to sing, is actually where the majority of birdsong study has been done. But the southern hemisphere is where these passerines, these songbirds, first evolved. And the females do tend to sing. We're going to get back to that shortly. But first, I wanted to understand how these birds go from being born to singing these complex songs as adults. How do they learn these songs along the way? Michelle Roper, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in this group, fills me in. When these birds are very small, what do they sound like? They sound much more like baby babble, just like in humans. They just don't really sound like anything you'd recognise. They sound very squeaky and crackly and they're just doing these long sequences as they're foraging around the trees. And it's not until six weeks old, in fact, that they um, can start doing this kind of baby babble. And then around sort of around 13, 14 weeks old, you can finally start to hear some similarities with the species song that they're, they're trying to learn. And this is where they start to learn from each other, the older birds around them, their neighbours, whoever's in their territory. Yes, so songbirds have to learn from others in their species, otherwise they will have to invent their own song, essentially. Other species of birds, they have this sort of innate template within their brain that enables them to learn the species' um, vocalisations. But songbirds, to be able to sing their species songs, they do have to learn from either territorial neighbours or their parents or other birds around them. What are the physical attributes that they have that allow them to make this wide diversity of songs? 
So there are two components. There is like the neural network in their brain, which is very different from other birds, which allows them to learn and also be able to sing these different types of songs. But the main thing I'm focusing on is their syrinx structure, which is their vocal organ. So like us mammals, we have the larynx within our um, throat that allows us to speak, whereas songbirds, their syrinx is at the junction between the bronchi and trachea in their lungs just above their lungs. So being the bronchi has two sides to it, that means they can actually produce two sounds at the same time. One sound produced by the right side and one sound produced by the left side. And this is very unique in the songbirds. And I am looking at how the different structure of their syrinx, like the size of the bronchial rings in the syrinx and the size of the muscles can allow them to produce these wide varieties of different song types. So right now, Michelle is studying these syrinx structure differences in a family of passerines called the honey eaters. And this is a common name given because many of these birds tend to eat nectar. And in New Zealand, this group includes tui and korimako, or bellbirds. Now, for Michelle's PhD, she looked at syrinx structure differences between male and female bellbirds, while also investigating how female bellbirds learn their song. And Wesley, another postdoctoral researcher that I spoke to, also did his PhD on female bellbird song. For Wesley, his PhD brought together the two interests he had had as an undergraduate, when he studied music composition and biology. He did his master's studying plankton, but as a self-described bird nerd, that was where his interest lay. And then the day after handing in, I was kind of facing the void of what to do next and printing out a copy of my honours thesis. And as I stood at the printer, I just happened to have a conversation with a lecturer there. And he had just found out about a PhD at Massey that had come available on birdsong, female birdsong. And I just, it was like I was standing in a beam of light. You know, the the Venn diagram intersect of my two interests of music and biology kind of became clear that this was a great fit for who I am and my interests. So alongside the work that Michelle was doing on female bellbird song for her PhD, Wesley was also trying to fill in some of the gaps of knowledge about female bird song. As part of his PhD, he did this study where he looked across all the songbirds he had enough data for and, well, first checked whether the females were singing and then asked whether female birdsong went together with having brightly coloured feathers or whether there's a trade-off. And actually we found that they track together. So females that sing tend to be more colourful on average. Oh, that's interesting. That was quite interesting. They're just more extravagant in general. Brighter colours and... Yeah, it looks like potentially there are overlapping, reinforcing functions of those two traits. That the song and the colourfulness are working together for a common purpose. Do you know what purpose? In our particular study, we couldn't discern what their purpose was as such. But what we guess it is, is to do with female competition between females for resources, breeding-relating resources. But yeah, that's still ongoing debate of why females have elaborate traits. The original picture, the traditional view, is that the males should be showy and elaborate to attract females, 
But females don't need to be. They just need to be picky and choose which mate they like the best mm. from the males. So when we find these examples of elaborate female traits, it's a bit of a mystery. Mm. And the same is true of song. That's why there's been this paradigm of females don't sing. It's because it doesn't fit the traditional picture and traditional understanding. Mm. Um, and when you say traditional picture and understanding, this is from the original work that was done in Europe, in the Northern Yeah, Hemisphere. dating all the way back to Darwin. And even now today, there's still a focus on males and male ornaments and neglecting the female side of things. So recently there has been research that some of the bias in the female song word is due to a bias in the gender in academia. And also as we get more females in academia, we are seeing this greater interest in female song, not only with the studies showing that this is important, but it's also being representative and make sure we yeah, get, get rid of this bias. Even as this female doesn't sing as much as a male, where it's important to include that in these studies so we get a greater comparison and understanding of our natural world. I found this point fascinating, that there's like this whole female aspect to birdsong that had gone relatively unconsidered, and that there's evidence that points to the gender of researchers being a factor in this. You can tell that this group of researchers are really passionate about correcting that bias. Diane explained to me in a bit more detail the thinking behind why female birds sing and how the evidence points to this being the original setup. So sexual selection has kind of two parts, attracting a mate and then defending against your rivals. And so the female song fits nicely into the defending against your rivals for a resource. If you think about resources more generally, like food and territories and access to things that you need for breeding... But there's been a focus on that other side of attracting a mate. And because there's so much research on systems where males only sing, female doesn't sing, you just exclude her from that aspect of sexual selection. So it's, there's been a push. Well, there's been a push by a few of us. Not a lot of people in the Northern Hemisphere are listening necessarily, but many of them are Southern Hemisphere researchers trying to understand that, you know, female song. And a really nice study came out a few years ago showing that female song is actually ancestral. So if you take a look, uh, you do an analysis and look at all of the, the birds and you can work back and you can figure out that actually the ancestors of the song learners, females were singing. So it's, they've dropped it rather than gained it as an attribute. So it was a kind of a core attribute of males and females for the early ancestors. So just picking up on the female song being ancestral, we saw that about 64% of songbird species have female song across all the songbirds. So it's actually very common. It's not this rare aberration that it was once imagined to be. So that makes it all the more important to understand why females are singing and then to compare male and female song to understand the differences between the sexes. How are males and females using song differently? And is that part of the work that you were doing? The main part of my thesis was a big field study on male and female New Zealand bellbirds and looking at the song cultures of males and females across a network of islands in the Hauraki Gulf, New Zealand. We wanted to 
compare the syllable repertoires. So syllables are the units that make up a song. They're kind of like the building blocks of song. They get strung together to make the complete song. And it's a good metric of diversity to see how many different syllable types are there in these songs. So the way we analyze these things is you divide a song up into its units, into its syllables, and then you classify those syllables into types so that you can see which types are present and give a score to how diverse is that song or to compare it with other songs and say how many syllables are in common with those other songs. So does this feel like the reverse of composition, of musical composition? True. That's actually a really great question. You are kind of analyzing it by deconstructing it into its basic components and so that you can analyze how they've strung those together to make a song. So, yes, you're right. It's a bit like analyzing a piece of Beethoven and <laughs> working out his, his building blocks that he used to build, build the piece. So Wesley's fieldwork involves six island sites across the Hauraki Gulf. And he took oodles of recordings of birdsong. So they would go to these sites with handheld shotgun microphones and just blitz them for recording and try to get recording of individual birds. And those that were good enough for analysis, which ended up being more than 2,200 recordings, Wesley would then analyse by breaking them down into syllables. So he would categorise them and catalogue them, and this allowed him to answer his question of whether male and female bellbirds are singing similar songs or different songs. So what we found is within each of these six sites, males and females are effectively speaking two different languages. There is a little bit of overlap, and the proportion of overlap changes a bit between sites, but... For the most part, males are singing a whole set of syllables that are male only, and females are singing a set that are female only, and then there's a few that both sexes sing. And Michelle can describe some interesting things about how those songs develop. What we found is that the males and females have much more similar characteristics in their song when they're very young, singing the sub-song and starting to get this sort of plastic song where it's just starting to sound like the species. But once their song is crystallised, we see these really significant differences in spectral parameters and the syllable types between males and females once they're older. The syrinx structure has been found in other species to be very similar between the sexes when they're very young, but as they get older and they practice their song more, they become, the muscles become much bigger and much more, I guess, unique to that species or the sex to be able to produce those songs. That's really interesting. So as the bird develops and it learns either the male or female syllables from its male or female neighbours and friends, it then develops physical attributes that kind of reinforce that. Yes, that's what is the research is showing so far. And my research is going to be following on from that to look specifically at differences between the songs of male and females within a species and seeing how the syrinx structures differ to be able to, for them to produce those unique songs. To explain some of the differences in sound and also how he did the actual syllable analysis, Wesley pulled out some clips for me. So there's just some examples of 
how musical Bellbird song can be. This is on Burgess Island, where the females all sing something that's vaguely related to happy birthday kind of sound. <laughs> that's amazing. I'll play it again. <laughs> very musical, tonal. Those are the piping notes that I talked about that are shared between sites. In that clip there, mm -hmm. how many syllables would you divide that up into? If you slow down the speed, that's, that's to half speed. And so... Because there's so many different syllables, even within that little clip, there's mm. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten yeah. syllables. Some of them will, will be the same. What you've worked on, what you've developed is Koi, which is a piece of software that helps you investigate these clips that That's you've taken. Yes, exactly. So the software's primary function was to help me classify these 21,500 syllable types into classes. So I've grouped them all into about 700 types, which means then I can look at how a song is made up. Like each, each syllable now has a label, which means I can compare two birds and see if they are singing the same type or not. Wow, they're so complex. Yeah, they are. Well, birds have a, an acuity of, uh, of song that's about four times better than ours. So they can distinguish between syllables a lot better than we can. Something that sounds continuous to us, they can actually detect these little bits. I mean, if you want an example of a complex syllable type, here's one that we recorded from Tafranui that sounds a lot like a flying saucer. And the more you slow it down, the more it sounds like a flying saucer. So I'll demonstrate. I mean, what is the sound of flying saucer? <laughs> Haven't you seen one? <laughs> That's amazing! <laughs> Was the second half of that slowed down? Yeah, the first half that you heard was the song that slowed down. So those bits are just progressively slowing down the flying saucer syllable part, which is using both sides of the syrinx at once, which is what makes it sound so interesting. Is there any indication that we are having an influence on what the birds are singing or what the birds are hearing around them is having an influence on what they're singing? Some of these sites with the most almost distinctly musical-sounding song types were some of the most remote and least visited by humans. So I don't think that humans are somehow influencing the song types specifically in that way. But we do know they're able to hear and learn the songs of different species. What tends to happen, though, is when they're choosing between hearing a foreign sound and hearing from a conspecific or a bird of the same species, their brain will much prefer to learn that of the same species. It's like that inbuilt template of what they should be trying to learn that keeps them from learning foreign sounds. 
So it's unlikely that they've heard a flying saucer. It's un- <laughs> well, you never know. Yeah. <laughs> On, and the happy birthday one was from somewhere pretty remote as well, wasn't it? That was from Burgess Island. Yeah, it's pretty unlikely someone's singing happy birthday on Burgess Island um, enough that it would be incorporated into the population. <laughs> but there are some species, um, and, and Tui are one of them, I think, um, and there are many parrot species that that actually use those other sources to make their song more complex. Mm. So they specifically look for other sounds. And it can be other birds or it can be environmental noise. Lyrebird, for instance, is a really nice example of that. With his background in musical composition, musicality in birdsong is something that also fascinates Wesley. Here's an example of just musicality of a male song. And is it possible that what's pleasing to us in a musical sense is also pleasing to them, and that's why they choose such melodic intervals, is a thought that I like to think about. Interesting. So the thought that when we're listening to birdsong, it's not actually them just like yelling at each other aggressively. You you think that maybe there's a kind of like soft singing communication that they're also enjoying, like they're just having a nice chat? Well, that's the interesting debate of whether birdsong is more like language or more like music. Because you can listen to a piece of music and it can move you emotionally. It can make you sad or angry or excited. Even though there's no actual meaning, word-by-word type meaning being communicated. So if birds can be moved musically in the same way, perhaps they choose phrases and contours that give the listener an emotional reaction without it being like a language-specific word-by-word meaning. So there are some papers on musicality in birdsong and whether, whether this is possible, which really interests me. I love this idea. Music is such a powerful driver of emotion to me, and the same for beautiful birdsong. I would love to think that what I hear from the birds that triggers such emotion in me could also be an emotive piece of music for them and that we are sharing this emotional musical experience. And by the way, what you are listening to, this is a piece that Wesley actually composed. It's called The Last Moa and is being performed here by the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra for the Todd Young Composers Sessions. While Wesley and I are discussing this, I can see Diane out of the corner of my eye and it doesn't look like she is totally on board. Oh, I can see you squirming. Have you got something to add? <laughs> well, I was just, just going to say that that's an interesting concept, but the emotion will be different for us. So if we're listening to birdsong, it might sound very melodic and beautiful and peaceful somehow, but when those birds are talking to each other, their emotions might be a bit different. And I think the other thing is if you look at the example of hee hee, the stitch bird, 
oh, they, their their song is irritating <laughs> to people. Anyways, it's kind of it feels off somehow. It's kind of scratchy and it um, a little bit like you know fingers on a chalkboard. So musicality uh, is an interesting concept. Yes, the idea of emotions being you know enhanced or caused by this, just not the same emotions that we have. You know, the emotions will be different. Oh, this is so interesting. Because <laughs> my brain is now going into, like, the realm of science is trying to be this objective process, but it's being done by people, and then we're going to bring our inherent bias in. And one of the things might be with regards how beautiful the song is or yeah, how annoying sure. different song yeah. is. Yeah, so that's why, you know, the, the analysis of the structure and, you know, some of the questions we ask try to step away from that uh, more subjective approach. And then the way that you test the kind of function is you go, go in the field and you do playback experiments and you have kind of criteria for looking at interactions. So social interactions, you play back and what responses do you get? And then you can try and interpret it that way. So when you're analysing the music by using the software, what you're doing is a very much separating, like, I really enjoyed that beautiful melodic clip to breaking it down into its discrete components because what you're feeling in response to the music might be completely different to what the bird is. Exactly, yeah. So the musicality is not really a part of what I've investigated. It's just an interesting question that I have about why bellbirds in particular choose the sequences that they do and why they sound so very musical. It is something that will be difficult to find an answer to, but an interesting thought to consider as you walk through the bush listening to birdsong. And Michelle would also like you to consider something else too. One thing I'd like listeners to think about is encouraging everyone to recognise that when you hear a song, it might not be just a male singer, it could be a female singing as well. Males aren't always the showy ones, females can be just as beautiful as the males. Thanks so much to Diane Brunton, Michelle Roper and Wesley Webb for sharing their research, their passion and some cool birdsong clips with me. The last MOA piece used in this episode was composed by Wesley Webb, performed by the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra for the Todd Young Composer Sessions and recorded by RNZ Concert. That piece was first aired on the 15th of July 2021. It was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, and engineered by Phil Bench. Tim Watkin is executive producer of Podcasts and Series. If you are enjoying the show, you can follow Our Changing World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you find your podcasts. Check out our website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. There's a massive back catalogue of episodes along with photos and links and the subscription to our monthly newsletter. And you can connect with us on Facebook or Twitter where we are at RNZ Science. Now next week we return to our normal schedule and I look forward to bringing you new stories of the research happening across Aotearoa. Until then, I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.